Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. I am really excited about today's message. I'm excited about what God, I think, is going to speak to us and do in us today in this room. It is our final installment in our For the One series, which we have been in for the last several weeks. And I don't know if it's been any good for you, but I have loved this series. It has really spoken to me and refocused me on how Jesus came for the one. He came to seek and to save the lost, and when he did it, he saw individuals one by one, face by face, in each and every moment, and each and every encounter that he had. And that's the same life that he has called us to. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, you can turn to Acts chapter 3. That is where we're going to be headed, Head, headed, heading, heading. In just a few minutes, we're going to be heading to the book of Acts, chapter 3. If you don't know, the book of Acts is the continuation of Luke's work. We have been traveling through the gospel of Luke over the last several weeks. And when you get to the book of Acts, Acts is the second half of Luke. It is his secondary work. It starts off and it says, in my previous writings to you or in my previous work to you, depending on your translation, and what he's referring to is the book of Luke. I don't know why, except for to create confusion or maybe so that we have to dig into it. They slid John right there in the middle of Luke and of Acts. It would have made great sense to me if they would have consulted me way back when they were putting this all together to slide John right in front of Luke and then let Luke and Acts just run together, but they did not do that. So I'm letting you know today that Luke and Acts go together. And what has been going on from the end of last week when we talked about Jesus' resurrection and his walk with these two boys who weren't sure what was going on and his revelation to them, it has been over the last week since you and I met, we have crossed about 40 days worth of time by the time we get here to Acts 3. Jesus has risen again and he has been appearing to people, to people to show that he is real. He has been eating with people to show that it is a physical resurrection. This isn't a metaphor and it's not just a resurrection of spirit, but that he is in body, has fully resurrected again. And he has been speaking to them about the final things that he wants to see from them. And then Jesus has ascended up into heaven and told the disciples, go and wait because I have something coming for you. I have some power coming for you. I have someone coming for you. And so the disciples go and they wait. And while they're waiting, they go ahead and replace Judas with Matthias. And I always think like, what a moment that like the scripture just moves over it in a couple lines. Like, oh, and while they were waiting, they decided to draw lots on who would replace Judas. Who would replace? Judas has been their boy for the last three years. He was part of the inner circle and drastically betrayed them. And now to continue the work that God has assigned them, they have to find someone to step into that role. And I often think when they were cast in those lots and they were down to the two, did they think think like I want my name to be picked or I don't want my name to be picked like who really wants to be the guy who replaced 
Judas. But they take care of that business while they're waiting. And then it says the Holy Spirit comes on them and it fills them with power. And it gives them this new found that they find out that Jesus has walked them into something that is not a basic level faith like they have been used to. That this is not going to be just the same old practicing religion that they had seen before. But that there is a new power that has has come on them and they go into the streets and Peter starts preaching and it says like 3,000 people get saved and become followers of Jesus and they start establishing the beginnings of what the church is going to look like. It has been a wild ride for them from Luke 24 until Acts 3 where we're getting ready to pick it up and the changing factor is that it says the Holy Spirit came and filled them. Who is this Holy Spirit? What is the deal with this? Because before Jesus leaves them, he says, I have something better for you. I have an advantage that I want to send you. You should go back and read the last few chapter or the last chapter in all of the gospels because they all talk about this idea that Jesus has something else that he is bringing to them and it is going to fill them with power. And Luke 24 and verse 49, this is how Luke recounts this moment. Just, it's like among Jesus' absolute final words to them. And Luke says, Luke recounts Jesus' words and says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on High. He says, I have a power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he is going to clothe you, not in new practices, not in new regulations, not in new standards, not in new traditions. He is going to clothe you with a power that is coming from on high. The Holy Spirit begins to be revealed to us then. If you look throughout scripture and you're reading in the Old Testament, the Old Testament gives us a deep zoom in focus on who is the Father God, who is the God head, and who is he, and you see glimpses of Jesus, and you see shadows of who Jesus is, and you hear about the Holy Spirit, and you hear that there is a Spirit of God, but it's zooming in on God the Father, and then you get to the Gospels, and the Gospels are zooming in on Jesus. And they're zooming in on who is the person of Jesus, part of the Trinity of the Godhead. And we hear about Jesus talking to the Father, and we hear about the dove, the power of God, the Spirit of God descending on Jesus. But it is zooming in on who is Jesus. And when we get to Acts and we move through the epistles, it is zooming in on who is the Holy Spirit. And we talk to God the Father and we're made in right relationship through our relationship with Jesus, our perfect example. But the Holy Spirit is the promise that the Father sent to us. He is the sealing work of our salvation. When Jesus says, I wanted you to come into a faith. And when you come into this faith, it's not just so you can start a new group or you can start a new sect or you can change up the sound or the look of what it means to worship God. It's because I have a brand new 
power that I want you to be filled with, and my people will be marked by my power. My people will be marked by what it means to be a follower of me and to be sent into the world with more than just a basic faith, with a faith that is filled with fire and with power and that has the ability to come into a situation and to absolutely change lives. And this is the Holy Spirit that Peter and the disciples have just encountered. This is the power that they have just received and been filled with and been clothed with. And they have this brand new thing. And this is where we pick up in Acts 3, starting in verse 1. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's about 3 p.m. It's the final hour of prayer for the day. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those who are entering the temple. He's gonna sit there and he's gonna beg for money because he doesn't have any legs and he can't earn, or he doesn't have functioning legs and he can't earn money for himself. Seeing Peter and John and about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms like he had done with everyone else who walked by, no doubt. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. What an emotional roller coaster this must have been for this man. Like he's just like, boom, because you start off with what you don't have. But Peter's going somewhere with what he's about to say to this man. But what I do have, I give to you. This man doesn't know that Peter has just received power from on high. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entering into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all of the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. God, I thank you that you have sent your power. Holy Spirit, that you fill us and you have given us power from on high. I ask for you to rest in this place, God. I thank you for those who are going to receive an infilling of your power today, God. We dedicate this space to you and we dedicate this time to you and we say it is all for you, Jesus. Amen. A couple of years ago, I started this, well, I said that I was gonna start doing this thing, which is that on Fridays, I really wanted to commit a time of what I call a time of holy rest, which means it's time that I dedicate to God where I don't do a bunch of other work and I don't do a bunch of other stuff, but I just slow down and rest in his presence. I just slow down and spend time with God. I do it on Fridays because Sundays is a day where I come here and I work and it's fun work, 
but it's a lot of work. And so on Fridays, I stay at home and I, I dedicate this time to God. And so a couple years ago, I was like, this is a thing that I feel like I really want to start doing and that I want to commit to and that I'm going to make a habit of in my life. And have you ever made a commitment to something in your life? And it's like all of the sudden, it was like for the next month, every week, somebody wanted to schedule something on Friday with me. I was like, no, I made a commitment that I'm going to leave my Fridays like open. It's just going to be me and Jesus time. And all of a sudden, someone who I'd been trying to catch up with for six months was like, hey, here's the times I can meet up. And they were all Friday mornings for the next four weeks. Or all of a sudden, there's this like really cool city project that I'm like, man, I really want to be involved in that. And they're like, great, we're doing all of our meetings on Friday mornings at 9 a.m. And I'm like, no, I just said that I was and you have experienced this. There's something that happens when we make a commitment that we're gonna walk in a new direction. There's something that happens when we say, I am committed to moving in a new space that all of the sudden, no, you say, hey, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna fast over the next week. And you know, 10 people at work are about to have a birthday and they are bringing in cake every single day without fail. You're like, when did all of you start having a birthday in the same month? What's happening right now? Did you guys know that I was signing up to start fast? It doesn't matter what you, you're like, I'm going to start tithing. Absolutely. Here we go as a family. And you're going to get like some bills that you had no idea were coming, or there's going to be this great like vacation opportunity that you've been looking forward to. Something is going to press in on that space. It does not matter. You're like, I am going to live a life of abstinence and purity before God and your ex who you have not heard from in 12 months is like what's up bae I'm coming in town this weekend and you're like I said what is happening because until a commitment is tested it's not really a commitment it's just a thought it's just a thing that might be nice in my life it's not until that commitment comes to a crossroads. It's not until it comes to a point where it is tested and you have to make a decision about, am I really going to live this life? Am I really going to hold fast to the thing that I said I was gonna hold fast to? That's when it forms over to the other side and becomes a commitment. When you receive that text and you say, do not text me back, Again, you have now been become committed to the new lifestyle that you said that you were about, but we want to think thoughts. We think, I think I'm going to have a good marriage, but that thought is not a commitment until it's tested. I think I'd like to finish my degree, but that thought is not a commitment until it's tested. I think that I'd like to live generously and give to other people, but that thought is not a commitment until it is tested. I think we'd like to be a family that shows up to church every weekend, but that thought is not a commitment until it is tested. It's at the place where something becomes tested. 
And I think the problem is that often we think thoughts and we hope that they become commitments, but when a challenge comes to the thought that we have, we think that that challenge is a red flag that we should be returning, that maybe this wasn't what God had for me in the first place, or maybe I jumped to conclusions, or maybe I should have never made. There is a pull and a desire in us to go back. We have a thought to move in a new direction. And instead of moving to that new direction, we keep returning to the old way. We keep backing off of the thing that we said we were going to do or the people that we said we were going to be. Peter talks about this when he writes in 2 Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, I believe. Is that right? Do I have 2 Peter? Yes, 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 20. He says these few verses. He says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they have moved in a new direction, they are again entangled in them and overcome, then the last state will become worse than the first state. For it would have been better for them to have known the way of righteousness, I think we're on 21 now, to know the way of righteousness than to never have known the, oh, I got lost, never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, there we go, to have turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Check out 22. What the true proverb has happened to them, it says the dog returns to his own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in in the mire. It says we tend to make a new decision to walk in a new path and to move in a new direction. I have a dog and I don't know if you have ever seen a dog throw up and then go and eat their own throw up, but it is among the most disgusting things that you can ever witness with your own two eyeballs. And Peter is telling us there is something about us that makes a decision to move in a direction, but when that direction is challenged, the thought that we have doesn't turn into commitment, and we are like those nasty dogs going back to the thing that we left from, and we keep going back to the thing that we said we weren't going to be part of anymore, and we keep going back to the thing that God told us to move in a new direction of, and we keep going back to the thing that we have been called out of and moved away from. And Peter is like, what are you doing? And Peter knows something about going back to the place that you've been called away from. When Peter writes these words, he uses imagery that makes your stomach curl and your toes get tight and your throat get gurgly in the back because he said it's that bad. Let me tell you how I know it's that bad because Jesus found me twice on a boat. He found me the first time when he called me, but somewhere along my walk, my thought, my statement, Peter who said, I'll go with you to the cross, Jesus. Peter had a thought, but his thought was challenged and it was challenged and it was challenged. 
And when Peter's thought was challenged, he found out that at that stage, his thought had not moved into a commitment yet. And when his commitment failed him, he said, I have to go back to the only thing that I know. I have to go back to the boat. And he went back to the boat and he started fishing again. And Peter said, I am trying to save you from the feeling that I had when I went back to the thing that I knew I had been called out of. And I went back to the thing that I knew was no longer for me. And this is what I want you to hear. I know that we think that it's things that we would maybe put under the banner of moral issues. Oh, you came out of a life of sexual promiscuity, yes. But Peter just went back to the job that he had before, which was a respectable career, which was necessary in his community which was helping people get fed and serving his family and most likely what his family had done for generations. There was nothing morally corrupt about the life that Peter had lived before. There was nothing morally decay about where he was before except for the fact that Jesus had called him away from it. And yet he went back. When his buddy Paul writes, Paul takes the other angle on the same sentiment of don't be pulled back. Paul is writing to the church in Philippians, and he's telling them the same thought of don't be thrown back. But Peter tells us don't be thrown back. And in Philippians and in chapter 3, Paul is telling them move forward. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. I forgot about that boat. That boat it's not even there to me anymore. It's not even in my memory anymore. I'm not even that person anymore. It's not even an option anymore. That's not even a place I can go anymore because I forget what lies behind and I look straight ahead to what lies ahead and I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying the same thing that Peter said. Peter said, don't go back to that vomit. And Paul said, look straight ahead. The faith that we have been called into and the life that we have been called into is not to be people who move back at every commitment and is not to be people who go back at every pressure and is not to be people who every time there's an inconvenience, we go, ooh, red flag alert, red flag. Maybe this job wasn't for me. It's not a red flag. It's an opportunity to move your thought from a thought into a commitment to prove that you can be tested, to prove that you can move straight ahead. And Paul says, fix your eyes, fix your gaze, fix your steps, fix your attention. Forget that that's even an option. Put a line in the sand because you are not going back to the thing that you came from and you're not going back to the place that you came from. So whatever you need to do to make some announcements and to call some people and to tell some people and to let some people know that the old me has been passed away. The old me has been forgotten. The old me is no longer there. The old me isn't a part of what we're doing anymore. I don't do that habit anymore. I don't do that thing anymore. I won't be found in that place anymore. And you can't call me for that anymore because I have fixed my eyes straight ahead and I press on and I press on and I press on for the deep calling that I have received in Christ Jesus. That is the faith we have been called to. And Peter and John 
find themselves at a critical juncture, a critical juncture in who they are going to be. See, things have started off great. They have received power, just like Jesus said. People are coming, masses of people are coming to know Jesus. Word is starting to get around about these boys who are turning the world upside down. Things are starting to happen. And the church seems like it's starting to form. If you look at the end of chapter two, it begins to tell you this is what the early church looked like. And things are so vulnerable in the beginning when they look like they're going well. It's easy to just think you're gonna ride that momentum. And it's easy to think that you can just point to yesterday's miracle and to yesterday's salvation call and to yesterday's opportunity. And they find themselves at one of those crossroad moments where they are walking up to the temple. And what happens in these critical junctures in our life is that we have a critical moment where we have to decide, am I going to press on for the thing I have been called to, or will I be pulled back to the place I have come from? Because the pull to go back is heavy, and the pull to go back is strong. There is a habit in where I have come from that is not counteracted by the habits of where I am going yet. And so the pull to go back to that space and to be who I once was, the desire to look back and the desire to go back. Ask Lot's wife. She was called to move forward. And she was told, don't even look back. Forget what's behind you, but the pull of the memories and the pull of what was and the pull of the good days. Have you ever heard this advice? I don't know why I'm on X's today, but I got this advice one time that when you break up with somebody, like if you're dating someone and you break up, that it's a really good idea to write yourself a note that day on what just happened and on why you broke up. Because what's going to happen in about two weeks? You feel lonely and nobody's there to hang out with you and nobody's texting and all of a sudden you're like, they were kind of nice actually. You know, it was cool how they used to bring me lunch sometimes. I had to go buy my own lunch today. And you start remembering, but our remembering is never quite accurate. And Lot's wife started remembering, and the remembering that she had was not altogether clear. And she looked back, and it cost her her life. The pull for the children of Israel to go back to where they came from, to go back to what they knew, to go back to what was familiar was so strong that they said that they would rather go back and be slaves than be free in the wilderness. That's how strong the pull in them was that they said, it would be better for me to go back into bondage and at least I know what food I would get then. 
And at least I know what it tastes like then. And at least I know when I get up in the morning what I'm going to be doing. I don't have to be out here in this wilderness uncertain of what we're eating and trying to follow a cloud and some smoke and some flames in the sky. I don't know. This is uncomfortable to me. And so actually, I'd rather just go back into my place of bondage. And it sounds ridiculous. But how many of us have ever gone back to our place of bondage because we were unfamiliar with what freedom felt like and tasted like and looked like and they went back to their place of bond they wanted to go back to their place of bondage there are critical junctures in our life where we have to make the decision, am I going to be who I said I was going to be or am I going to get drawn back into the old thing because it's uncomfortable out here in the new thing and it's unfamiliar out here in the new thing and I'm gonna have to explain what's going on because no one really understands this new thing yet and it's gonna be inconvenient to some people and it's going to be uncomfortable and it's kind of going to make a scene if we do this new thing. And Peter and John find themselves walking to the temple and there is a man who has been crippled from birth and he has been brought to the temple so that he can ask for alms, so he can ask for people to give him charitable giving on their way in. And this man is in the best possible position that the basic faith that he had before had to offer him. This man has been crippled from birth, and in the moment and time that he lives, it means he has almost zero options available to him to make a living for himself. And so in the best form of compassion that they know how to offer and in the best form of love and of care that they know how to provide for this man, he has brought out in front of the temple where people will see him and where others will walk by him and where they will be predisposed to give out their alms because they are on their way in to pray. And maybe he can find a way in his life to just manage the lot that he has been given and it's not unkind it's the best that they have to offer it's the best opportunity that he can hope for it is the the the, the love of those around him that bring him to this place day in and day out and say hopefully someone will look on you with compassion today and will put something in your cup that helps keep you for the next day and it's day in and it's day out hopefully today will be just enough to manage this situation and we come to God with the same thing of God. Can you just give me enough to manage the situation that I find myself in? We desire just enough, God, just enough to create a space where I could maybe hope to contain what I'm living in, where I could maybe hope and dream of a time where there is something that I can just walk within this path. And maybe I'll come every day, God, but if you could just help me manage this addiction, God, if you could just help me have the type of control or the type of discipline that, that keeps my addiction under wraps, God, that 
that would be great if you could just give me enough for that. God, this depression feels like it's a lot. And if you could just show me some tricks to manage this depression, if you could just show me how to walk throughout my day, I, God, I know that I have it, but what is it that I can be doing? What if, this is what this man hoped and dreamed for, just enough to manage. And it says like he had done probably for every other person who had walked by. He sits there in front of a gate called beautiful. And as he sits there, he shakes his cup and he says, alms, alms, who will give him something? And it says that Peter and John stop. And then it says, and Peter looked at him. Peter looked at this man who no doubt had been walked by time and time again by people who no doubt others even who gave into his little cup had tossed it and not looked for a second time at who he was he had become part of the tapestry and he was a bit of an inconvenience but they didn't want to walk into prayer having walked by the guy who needed a coin on their way in and they didn't take the moment to look at him but it says Peter and John stopped and they looked at him a man crippled from birth sitting with a cup waiting in the heat outside of a door watching everyone else walk into the temple watching everyone else go where he can't go and do what he can't do because of the form and the position that he finds himself in walked by time after time again and it says Peter and John stopped and they looked at him they didn't look at the city. They didn't look at the crowd walking by. They didn't look at the temple. They didn't look at his broken legs. They looked at him. And I have to remember where we started this whole thing with Jesus and a woman who wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. And Jesus looked at her. And Peter and John have been learning something while they were walking with Jesus that though the crowds may come, it's not about the crowds that come because they have had a couple of months and they have learned very quickly that the crowds will sway on you and the crowds will turn on you and the crowds will cheer for you and the crowds will jeer you and you cannot trust in the crowd and you cannot preach to the crowd alone. They stopped and they looked at the one man, the one who was sitting there by a gate called Beautiful, who was sitting there shaking his cup, hoping. And it says, when they looked at him, the man looked back at them. And they say, we don't have any silver and gold. We don't have what you're looking for. But what we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth is not just a fun thing for them to say. It is a phrase that evokes the authority and the power of the name that you insert there. It is a declaration that I have been sent on behalf of. And when I speak in the name of Jesus, it is as if he is here and he is present 
present in this place right now. They say in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he grabs his hand and he pulls him up. And Luke is a physician, so he describes it in detail. If you look at the original text, he describes which bones on his foot began to come into place and how his ankles and his legs slapped into alignment. And it says that the man stood up and not started wobbling and not started shaking. It says the man stood up and he started leaping and he started running because he said, I've never been able to do this before. I've never had this experience before. I've seen other people walk by before me and I've seen other people step in front of me and I've spent my whole life down on the ground looking at other people's ankles and other people's feet, wondering how they did that and wondering why mine didn't work like that. But Peter looked at him and he said, stand up and walk. And the man experienced something he never thought possible. He experienced something he had never experienced before. And he started walking and he started leaping and he started praising God because there is power from on high. And he did not call you to live in a basic faith. He did not call us to live in a way that helps people manage their lives, that helps people manage their sickness, that helps people manage their illness or their heavy. He said, I am sending you my Holy Spirit. I am sending you power from on high. I am sending you something that will fill you and will clothe you and it's gonna change the whole thing. You don't have to sit by a bank gate begging anymore. You can declare this thing. You can declare this thing. <laughs>